You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. This year, we are going into a teaching series called Signs. We're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus according to the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to John. We're going to be in John chapter 2 today. And while you do that, I just, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever asked God for a sign? I, mean, I think that's a pretty common thing, right? You know, we get to these pivotal moments in our life. Maybe for you, it's been a moment where you were investigating uh, your, your faith. Do I believe in God or not? And maybe you prayed that prayer God, would you give me a sign that you're real? Or maybe for you, you've been at a pivotal moment in life where you needed direction. You needed clarity on a major decision. And it was one of those things where you just said, God, if you want me to do this, if you want me to go this direction, would you give me a sign? What I would argue is we think we want a sign, but what we actually want is something else. And there's a lot of words that you could use to describe miracles or wonders, but John in particular uses this term sign to reference these specific miracles that Jesus does. Let me me give you an illustration. Imagine that you wanted to go see the Grand Canyon, and you drove 835 miles from Boise down down to uh, the Grand Canyon, and you got to the, the sign... Grand Canyon National Park, and depending on how fast you drove, you know, you're looking at 12 hours, maybe a little bit quicker if you're breaking the law, right? But you, you drive all the way down there, and maybe you bring your friends or your family, and you get to the sign, and you, you stop, you pull off the side of the road, and you're like, we did it! And you take a picture, picture maybe you even take a selfie with the sign of the Grand Canyon, and you breathe it in for just a few moments, and you get into your car, and you turn around, and you head back to Boise, That's silly, right? It's kind of an absurd thing. Because you recognize that the sign isn't why you drove all that way. You actually drove to the Grand Canyon to see what? The canyon. That's what you came to see. You didn't drive all that way. You didn't go through all that effort to see the sign. And what this illustrates is that signs aren't the point in and of themselves. You get that? That the sign, by definition, points to something beyond itself. And so in this season of Lent, we are going to be looking at the works of Jesus, these miracles of Jesus. But I don't want to get too caught up in these miracles because these miracles actually point us to something beyond themselves. They point us to the identity of Jesus. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And they teach us about God's kingdom. And in John chapter 1, really what's unique about the Gospel of John, John actually records this idea of the early disciples of Jesus. And uh, Jesus calling some of the early disciples, and one of these is a man named Philip, and he meets Jesus, and he finds out he's the Messiah, and he's just overcome with joy and excitement, and he goes to his friend Nathaniel because he wants Nathaniel to also become a disciple. Have you ever had that burden for someone? Where you were just like, you wanted them to know, you wanted them to have the joy uh, of knowing Christ, and so he goes to Nathaniel, and initially Nathaniel's like, skeptical because he finds out Jesus is from Nazareth and he's kind of like well nothing good can come out of Nazareth you know it's kind of like that rival between the two towns or whatever and Philip gives him this really simple invitation come and what come and see 
just see for yourself. He doesn't try to argue with Nathaniel. He doesn't try to convince Nathaniel. He says, well, sometimes the best thing that you can do is actually just come and encounter Christ for yourself. And I would just give that invitation to you if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Come and see. I want to invite you to keep coming to church and keep hearing the gospel. I want to invite you to read through scripture and see for yourself, to, to have an actual encounter with Jesus. And so Nathaniel, although he's reluctant, he says, all right, I'll come and meet Jesus. I'll see what he has to say. And he goes from being the skeptic to he meets Jesus and Jesus says, I know you. I saw you when you were sitting under a fig tree. And Nathan- this is like, you know, profound prophetic, you know, over Nathaniel's life. He's amazed by this really kind of minor miracle that Jesus does and in, in telling him that he knows him and he knows all about his life. And Nathaniel goes from being totally skeptical to confessing you are the son of God in a moment. You would be amazed what a genuine encounter with Jesus can do to someone's life. And that's why I just want to invite you to just keep coming, keep seeing, keep looking, keep asking, keep praying, keep reading, keep investigating, and I pray that you would have a moment like Nathaniel has, where you recognize the truth of who Jesus is. Well, Jesus has this interesting response to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 50. He says, you will see greater things than these. He's like, you thought the fig tree thing was amazing? And it's almost like Jesus is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I just want to speak that over you. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you kind of have bought into this idea of like, well, yeah, God has forgiven my sins. He's saved my life. He's moved in my life in the past. But, you know, it's kind of just cruise control from here on out. Do you believe that God wants to do something powerful in your life today? You will see even greater things then these, the longer that you follow Jesus, the more that you surrender your life and are filled with the Spirit, God can do more, I believe, than you could ever ask or imagine. And so would we, as believers, enter into the season of Lent on our knees in prayer, potentially giving something up and fasting and seeking God? You know that spiritual hunger we've been talking about? Would you be spiritually hungry in this season, believing that you will see even greater things than these. Amen, church? Anyone excited for this this new teaching series, Signs? I'm so excited. Let's look at the first miracle of Christ. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So the setting place is Cana in Galilee, which is about nine miles north of Nazareth. Nazareth, you might recall, is where Jesus grew up. It's his hometown. And so Mary and Jesus, and we're not sure if the disciples were originally invited or they were like his plus one or plus five or however many of them kind of tagged along, but it's very likely that Mary and Jesus, that they knew this couple who was getting married. Perhaps relatives, if not relatives, then family friends, right? It's not coincidence that, they, that they're invited, but they know these people, and a problem arises during the course of the wedding feast. Now, you have to understand that weddings are a little bit different in in the first century, especially in first century Judaism, where for us, yeah, I do a lot of weddings as a pastor, 
So, I, you know, I, I kind of officiate weddings, and I attend a lot of weddings. For us, it's kind of like you have the wedding, you have a good meal, and then it's like, see ya, you know, to the bride and groom. What is it, where do they usually go after their wedding? They usually go off to a honeymoon. They leave, and it's like alone, you know, alone time for them. Well, in first century Jewish weddings, you would have the wedding, and then you would have a week that was a total party for a whole week. Seven days of inviting your friends over and eating meals, and, and it, was, it was like different, different culture, right? It's not like, you know, you want to be alone, nobody bother us. It's like, like let's bring everybody in and let's, part, you know, let's, let's enjoy each other's company. And so at some point throughout the wedding feast, throughout that week, the wine runs out. Now, this is the problem that we encounter in the text. And you might say, well, what's, what's the big deal? Well, first of all, it kills the vibe, okay? <laughs> so, you, you know, it's, it's like... The wine runs out, and I was like, ah, but it's, it's actually more than that. This is an honor-shame culture, and what is meant to be the, mo- the happiest week of this newly married couple's life now has the potential to bring great shame and dishonor, and maybe even speculation on, oh, if they're already running out of wine, I wonder how their marriage is going to go. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's kind of like, that's like a bad omen for their, for their, for their wedding and their marriage and all that. So it's, it is this problem. And for some reason, Mary even feels the burden of this more than the other party guests. Now, is Mary helping with catering? We don't know. Like, maybe she actually is like, I ordered too little wine. Like, I don't know. Or maybe she just notices this problem and she cares about the implications for the newly married couple. But here's the point that we can learn, is that Mary goes straight to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Where do you go when you're empty? Where do you go when you run out of wine? Don't say the liquor store. I'm not talking, this is metaphorical. It's a metaphor for a second, okay? But where do you go when you encounter a problem? Where do you go when you're dry, even spiritually dry? Where do you run to? Because the place that we go when we encounter trials, problems, suffering, reveals who we actually have faith in to help us, who we trust the most. And for a lot of us, we run to ourselves, our own resourcefulness, our own ideas. Maybe we run to the internet to research our problems. Maybe you run to the experts, right? Where do you typically go? Do you go to a coping mechanism when you're empty, when you need fulfillment? Or do you take the example of Mary, you go straight to Jesus every single time? Now, we don't know that Mary expects a miracle here. It doesn't say that. She just, she just goes to Jesus. And we, we're not sure if she expects him to do a miraculous thing, but we know that she believes he's going to do the right thing. That whatever the right decision is in this situation, she trusts that Jesus will do the right thing. And it's this Really, one of the things that shocks me about this text is that Jesus responds to his mother, and he says, woman, now this isn't like an offensive, like, woman, it's more like ma'am, you know, he's, he's like, why, why are you asking me this? Like, what do you expect from me? And he says this line, my hour has not yet come. He's referring to the hour of his death, and if you've read through the Gospels, early in the ministry of Christ, which this is very early, this is the very beginning of the public ministry of Christ. There's this term called the, theolog- the messianic secret, where it seems like Jesus does these miracles. You'll notice this if you read through the Gospels. And sometimes he does a miracle, and everyone's like, this is amazing, i got to tell everybody. And Jesus is like, please don't tell anybody yet. And it's like, why? Well, the reason why 
is because the more people, the, the, the more people actually know that Jesus is the Messiah, the more it hastens the hour of his death. And, and Jesus is actually saying, I've got a lot of work to do in my ministry, and it's not my time yet. Now, the, now that time has already come and gone, and Jesus has done the work of redemption, so we need to tell everybody about who Jesus is, okay? But during, especially early in the first year or two of his ministry, he, he has this, this sensitivity as he walks by the Holy Spirit that, like, I can't really, like, Mom, you know, like, that's kind of his response, right? He's <laughs> like, ah, Mom. And what totally shocks me about John chapter 2 is that Jesus, spoiler alert, he's going to do a miracle, okay? He accommodates his mother's request for a luxury item at a wedding feast. Nobody's starving. Nobody needs healing. This is like big deal. The wine's out. And yet he is willing to interrupt his divine plans for this to be his first public miracle. That is what we call kindness. In this first miracle, what's revealed about the heart of God is God is kind. He cares about even the trivial things that you care about. He cares about what's actually going on day to day in your life. Not just the things that you think you should pray about. He cares about the things you actually pray about. The things that are actually on your heart. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter tells us that, that we should cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray both for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a God-sized vision prayer, right? That's the things you should be praying about. But you want to know what he also teaches us to pray about? Could I just have some bread? Would you give me my daily bread? Both the, the, the God-sized vision and, and prayers for your life as well as the actual day-to-day -day necessities. God cares about you, you're having a hard time parenting your small children. God cares about things are going difficult at work. God cares about the fact that you're not sure what to do with your finances. God cares about, you know, not just like terminal diagnosis. God cares about you've got a little minor cold. He cares about who? He cares about he cares about you. Isn't that amazing? God cares about you so deeply. And so Mary knows this. I think this is why Mary goes to her son, because she knows that Jesus is a man of deep compassion. And Mary tells the servants the best advice that you can, you can pattern your life around. Do whatever he tells you. Continuing in John 2, verse 6, let's see what Jesus does. Now there are six stone uh, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So that's his command. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So the, the groom gets the credit for this miracle, by the way. Called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. And you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now I want to 
kind of wrestle with a question that often comes up in this text, which is a total side question, but I think it's an important enough question to at least wrestle with. What was the alcohol by volume in this wine? <laughs> How much alcohol was there in this? Were, are, you, are you curious about that? Because let's do a little bit of math for a second. You've got six 30-gallon jars. That's 180 gallons of water, which would turn into 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine, okay? Just to give you, I just want to give you a little bit of a reference here. I've got this five-gallon bucket, and I filled it with water this morning, or I filled it with water the other night. And uh, this is five gallons. Picture 36 of these up here on stage. That's a lot of wine. And so it raises, a, it poses a, you know, an interesting question. Again, I don't want to get stuck on this question, but was it zero, was it zero percent? Is this a water into Welch's grape juice miracle? <laughs> was it 25 percent? It's like, whoa, that's, I mean, I've never tasted that stuff before. Like, what, like, what was it? And I just want to, I just want to kind of answer in two ways. The first, I'll just give you my thoughts. By the way, the Bible doesn't like clearly answer this, but I just want to give you my take on this. You're welcome to disagree. But I, I would say it's, it's very likely not 0%. If you know anything about first century Mediterranean culture, uh, during the ministry of Christ, wine plays a significant role in daily life for people, as well as Jesus partakes of wine numerous times we know of in Scripture. Not just at the Last Supper, but here at the wedding feast, as well as consistently as he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Do you think tax collectors and sinners are buying 0% ABV? <laughs> and he was known, he, he like labeled as a glutton and a, and a drunkard in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Now, not to say that Jesus ever got drunk. Because we know, scripturally speaking, that drunkenness is a sin and that Jesus never sinned. Therefore, Jesus never got drunk. You see the logic there? And so not that he was a glutton or a drunkard. Those were simply titles that people assigned to him because he spent time with the unreputable people. And yet, you, you couldn't say of Jesus, like, well, you know, he's, he's with them, but he, he only drinks water whenever he's with them. Like, he, he drank wine when he was with people. So it's not, very likely not zero percent, especially when the master of the feast comes out and he's like, this is the good stuff. Like, very likely, it's, there would have been some level of alcohol in that wine. At the same time, I also do want to acknowledge the dangers of alcohol. So don't read this first miracle as permission to go, I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? To have an extra few drinks or anything like that. In the ancient world, wine was normally watered down two to three parts water, one part wine. And so it is very common for the, the normal, you know, drinking wine to be this diluted kind of wine. Not 25%, right, pretty, pr likely pretty low alcohol by volume percentage so that people could actually drink it, you know, with every meal and drink it specifically throughout seven days of a wedding feast without getting absolutely hammered drunk, okay? Because the point of this miracle is not Jesus enables people to get drunk. And I don't want to make too, too light of that because I recognize that there, maybe there's someone in this room who struggles with alcoholism today. And I want to tell you that God wants to give you freedom from that. Victory over that addiction. Amen? And so just want to, that's just my take on it. Again, is that the point of this miracle? No. And you could argue for hours about this. So that's just my take on it. But here, here's the point of the miracle. The point of this miracle is that Jesus keeps the party going. He keeps the wedding feast going 
going. And he makes the wine in such an abundant quantity that there's enough for anybody. Even if some extra disciples want to tag along. Even if some extra people off the street want to come in. He makes enough that anyone and everyone can jump in and join in the celebration. Here's my point. Obedience leads to abundance. Obedience leads to abundance. I want to just put you in the shoes of the servants for just a moment. What did Mary say? Do whatever. Do whatever he says. And these are good servants, okay? They kind of get overshadowed in, in this story quite a bit. But just think about the significance of these servants. I did a little bit of math. So this is five gallons of water, and I didn't fill it to the brim because it's heavy. And I was like, am I really going to lift this up and show everyone how I'm, I'm a runner, not a lifter, right? I'm like, oh, man. This is, a, this is a, what does it say? On, oh, it's on this side. Let's do this, right? You know, this is a bucket. And just think about like even one five-gallon bucket, how, how much that weighs. I did a little bit of a math equation. The amount, the, the amount that 180 gallons of water weighs is 1,500 pounds of water that those servants move. Now, let me just put it to you like this. Like, Jesus didn't say fill all six to the brim. He just said fill these jars, and so imagine if the servants got done filling one jar and they were like, oh, do we really have to, and we don't know where the well was. We don't know where they got the water. They're like walking the water and they're like, oh, you know, and they fill one of the jars and they're like, is that enough? If the servants only filled one jar with water, how much wine would they have received at the wedding? One, one jar's worth, right? What if they said, okay, well, we're going to fill all of them, but we're not going to fill them to the brim. We're only going to fill them halfway. They'd only have half as much wine. Do you see this? And so how, much, how full do they fill them, by the way? To the, to the brim. They, they're like, we're not going to miss a drop of what this man's going to do, of the miracle. What if they were just like, well, you know what, just a coffee mug's worth of water. That's all we're going to give him. That's all the obedience that we're going to give him. The reality is, obedience to Jesus leads to the abundant life that Jesus speaks about in his kingdom. And there's a correlation between those two. The amount that we surrender, the amount that we obey, the amount that we follow the commandments of God is the amount that we experience his abundant life. Look at what Jesus said in John 15, which is a passage about grapes, wine, grapes. You see what I'm talking about? He says this at the end of his, uh, his teaching in John 15, 10 through 11. If you keep my commandments. Somebody say if. Whenever you read the word if, it's a conditional statement. That means it totally relies upon the statement that follows. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be. Everyone say that next word. Might be full to the brim overflowing everyone's running around in this lifetime asking what's the key to the good life what's the key to happiness what's the key to fulfillment i'll tell you what the key is obey jesus this is why that statement do whatever he tells you that is the key to living a true abundant life here on this planet so let me just pose this question to you how much do you want to see god do in your lifetime one gallon's worth one coffee mug's worth, 180 gallons to the brim, as many drops as you can get out of it. Obey 
Jesus. Obey Jesus. Follow him. Do whatever he wants you to do in your life. Paul talks about this same principle in 2 Corinthians 9 where he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. He's talking about the life that we live in God's kingdom. And some of us get puzzled. Why am I not experiencing more of this abundant life? Are you following Jesus? Are you doing whatever he's telling you to do? And this is not just a miracle of quantity. This is also a miracle that displays quality. What does the master of ceremonies say? You've kept the what? You've kept the best stuff, the good wine until last. God doesn't make pieces of trash. He doesn't make things that aren't quality. If God makes it, you can ensure it's going to be good. It's going to be the good stuff. And I love this idea of, of it's, it's the reverse. It's the opposite. Like usually people bring out the good stuff at first. And then as the week goes on, it's like, what do we got left? We got our left back there. Bring, all right, bring it on out. And Jesus, I believe there's this principle that life with God gets better and better. Amen? Have you experienced that? That this is a miracle of the transformative power of Jesus and oftentimes we experience that when we initially come to Christ, right? He does a powerful work, and he, he takes us you know, from, from death to life. He takes us from old to new. He washes our sins away. He does that transformation. But for, sadly, I would say this is a tragedy that for many people, they look back, and they're like, that's the best that God will ever do for me. Well, what about the good stuff that he saved for now, for this week? Do you, are, are, you, are you even accessing the resurrection power of the gospel on a daily or weekly basis in your life? Let me pose this question to you. What is the new thing that God wants to do in you? Can somebody say new thing? That's the beautiful thing about this miracle. It's a miracle of transformation where God takes water and he makes it a new thing. He makes it into wine. You know that God not only wants to forgive you from your sins, he wants to give you freedom over sin and temptation. And for some of you, you've resigned the fact, well, I've just struggled with this temptation for years. I guess I'll never be free. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just keep asking for forgiveness, and I'll never, uh, I can give up on fighting that temptation because you know what? I guess this is just me. This is just my life, and you resign yourself. Do you believe in the resurrection power of the gospel, church? He wants to give you freedom. He's a chain breaker. He wants to give you victory over those sin and temptations. That might be the new thing God wants to do in you. Maybe there's a relationship in your life. It's just broken. You haven't spoken for years. And I, just, I would just pose this. If God can take us as enemies towards him and reconcile us by the power of the gospel, there is no human relation that is too broken that God cannot reconcile. Amen, church? Maybe for you that's the new thing. But are you being obedient to what God is calling you to do to reconcile, church? You've got to fill those buckets with water and I know it's work, but God wants to do a new thing in you. What's the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Is there evidence of love, joy, peace, patience? Patience! Whoa. Maybe that's a new thing that God wants to grow in you and produce in you by His Holy Spirit. Are you willing to pray into that in this season? To pray for more fruit. Maybe, maybe it's the fruit of discipling someone else. It's the good works that God has for you. It's the spiritual gifts that God has given to you. And those spiritual gifts have been in their, in their little gift wrap package. And you've never really opened or activated or been obedient. Even to the one inch, taking that step of faith into the unknown. 
into the discomfort that God has for you. Church, do you want to see God do a new thing in your life? Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. He says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Now what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about the new thing of his kingdom and how the religious leaders of his day were unwilling to budge on the religious practices and the things that they had grown accustomed to. And I think there's a principle for you and me in our lives. The Holy Spirit wants to do a new thing in you today. I promise he does. But we can get so accustomed to life as normal that we are the ones who's actually constraining the work that God wants to do in your life because growth requires change. And we all know that change can be very uncomfortable. But here's something I'll tell you. If you will let God do his work, I promise you it'll be worth it. I promise you it'll be worth it every single time because that wine that God wants to do, that's the good stuff. And so Jesus does this miracle and the party continues. And even though this wasn't the miracle that Jesus had planned as his you know, first miracle of his ministry, it's actually, when you think about it, the perfect miracle, isn't it? Because it took place at a wedding. And I think there's a lesson there about God's kingdom. I preached this uh, message to students years ago in youth ministry, and I think my main point that night was Jesus likes to party. <laughs> and that's not my main point for today, because I know I could be like, you could misconstrue that or whatever. But I would say it like this, Jesus is throwing a party. It's called the kingdom of heaven. One of the most predominant metaphors used for God's kingdom by Jesus himself is a wedding banquet. Look at Matthew chapter 22 verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a feast. And just think about that. Think about like the best wedding you've ever been to. Maybe for you it's your wedding day and that is like the happiest day of your life. Maybe your wedding day was actually a train wreck. That, and hey, that's happened sometimes. Maybe it's someone else's wedding. You're like, that was a good wedding. <laughs> but just think about that idea of like the best wedding and you show up and every, like everyone looks good, you know? And then there's smiles, and like the, you can smell the food. It's like, this is going to be good food, you know? And there's this, pl- there, people are there that you didn't know were on the guest list, and you're like, you're there too, you know them too? And you're like, yes, we're, let's sit together, you know? And like there's this, there's this sense of belonging. There's a sense of joy and laughter. And God's kingdom is that place that the human heart has been longing for since we were separated from God in the Garden of Eden. It's the place where everyone has this, ah, I feel at home. And it's just good to be in God's presence and to be in the presence of everyone who's invited. But here's the point that Jesus makes in Matthew 22. Although everyone's invited to this wedding, not everyone responds. Not everyone is willing to show up or to show up on the terms that the king sets and think about God's kingdom, not just here right now in the sense of, of what God is doing in our present age, but think about God's kingdom fully realized when heaven meets earth. In Revelation 19 verse 9, it says this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so heaven is even portrayed as this, this wedding feast, this wedding dinner. I want you to imagine that for a moment. All believers throughout 
history who are there and Jesus is at the head of the table and there's all these seats and it's not just like the, the, the best food that we could think of on earth. It's like better than the best, right? It's, it, it's, it's perfect. Do you know that you'll be seated at that table one day? You'd be, like, be really honest for just a moment. How certain are you that there's a seat for you at that table? Because the only thing that gives us certainty is knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen? That's the only thing that gives us certainty that our names are written in the book of life. And I'm here to tell you, maybe if you're here and you're exploring things of faith, I want you to hear this maybe from me for possibly the very first time in your life. You're invited to that table. You're invited into God's kingdom. And, and this wedding feast is not a feast that you throw for yourself. It's not a feast that you paid for. It was paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus is the son of the living God. He lived a perfect life that we could never attain to. And he died a sinner's death on the cross in your place and on your behalf. Three days later, he rose in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And now he wants to share his victory with you. And the way that we receive the gospel is we fully put our faith in Jesus. And that, that faith, that word faith, is not just you believe that those events took place. It's you live with him as your Lord and your Savior. Or to use the line of Mary, you start doing whatever he wants you to do. He is the king of your life. He is the king who is throwing the wedding feast. But you can't get in on your own terms. There's no sneaking into that wedding feast in fact, in Matthew 22, in that parable, there is a guy who tries to sneak in. And he's wearing the wrong clothes, and he gets kicked out. And it's this idea of, like, you, we can't go to God on our terms. Whose terms do we go to God on? On his terms. And Jesus said, there's only one way in. There's only one gate. There's only one door, and his name is Jesus. And so would you receive the gospel? Today can be the day that you receive the gospel by God's grace, by putting your faith in in Jesus, and I want to invite you to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. Baptism is this, this symbolic act of being washed clean, being clothed with Christ's righteousness. It also represents this death to the old self, this, this water transformation where this, this death turns into life because of what Jesus has done in the gospel. And if you're willing to follow Jesus in the baptism, I can tell you that God will do a a miracle of transformation in your life. And you can learn more about baptism. You can sign up online at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. And I believe there's more people that God wants to call to himself through the ministry of our church this year. Amen, church? And if you're here and you, you already know, you're, part of the, you're already in the party. You're seated at the table. You, you, know, you, you know that you're in a relationship with Jesus. I just want to pose this question to you. Who are you inviting because Jesus made enough wine for everybody. That wine probably lasted long after the wedding feast was over. You see this in the feeding of the 5,000. He does more than enough. If he's going to do something, he's going to overdo something, right? And that's how it is with God's kingdom. Christ has already paid the price of our freedom, our redemption, our reconciliation. It's already been done. And there's, 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 I would say it like this. There's always room for one more at the table of God's kingdom. And so who are you inviting would you pray into those relationships that God has already put in your life? The friends, the family members, the neighbors. Would you pray into those things? Because we can't do a, a miracle of transformation in anyone's heart, can we? 
right? God is the only one who can transform the human heart. And so would you pray for softness of heart? Would you pray for open doors? But then would you also show people the goodness of God? I mean, when people think of God and his kingdom and life following Jesus, what do they think of? Do they think it's a party? Do they think that's a place of belonging? That's a place of acceptance? Or do they think that's a place of judgment and hypocrisy? Do they think that's a place that I want to stay as far away from? And the way that we live our lives actually tells the story of what life is actually like in the kingdom of heaven. And so with your life, would you actually showcase the kind of life? With our children, I mean, that's with our kids, are we showcasing it's a joy to follow Jesus? Do we actually believe that the good news of the gospel is good for us and life with Jesus every year gets better and better and better? And then eventually, would you actually share the good news of the gospel with your words? Would you actually speak gospel truth and invite someone into the party? It might look like an invitation to church. It might look like this season you're going to pray that you would invite someone to Easter. It might actually look like an invitation to your table before they're invited to the table of the kingdom of God. Just an invitation to a coffee shop, an invitation into deeper relationship with you so that they would be ready to receive the good news of the gospel. Amen, church. I want to close just by praying this prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. You can bow your head and close your eyes if you want. And this is a prayer that we would be filled. In Ephesians three fourteen through 19, Paul prays this for the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.